Welcome back to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan, 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in Washington, D.C. Your morning drive time show for news, entertainment, and fun. We have with us now, we haven't had him for a while, but he's one of my favorite guys, James Corbett. He's founder of The Corbett Report. That's with two T's online. And we're talking about something interesting, the World War One conspiracy, the lead up to World War One, And I've heard so many people now, many people compare the times that we are living in now to pre-World War One, when people kind of stumbled into an ungodly world war. James Corbett, welcome to Fall Lines. Thank you for having me back. Pleasure to be back uh, and talking to you as always. So let's talk about you've done a video on it. So let's well, yeah, talk it was about just, what uh, you the 100th anniversary of World War One. And James has a great video out that I watched entitled The World War One Conspiracy, where he goes through the history of a lot of the lead up to World War One. So, James, why don't you just uh, kind of briefly uh, give us an intro of that video and kind of some of the things you covered there? Well, let me start by turning it back around on you guys. If you were to give the one sentence sum summarization, the soundbite that you would hear on any newscast of how World War One started, how did it start? It's it was the shot heard around the world. Yeah. The Archduke. There you go. Sarajevo, June 28th, 1914, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And and because of that, there was, well, the, the Austrians were mad at the Serbs, and, and then the Serbs called on Russia, and, and the Austrians called on Germany, and bada bing, bada boom, World War One. right? I mean, that's that's basically what we all learn in uh, high school or wherever we learn about World War One, and that's pretty much the soundbite summary. Well, th so that is exactly right. Out of World War One. I remember maybe like a paragraph or two almost from high school from yeah. a history book, and that's what we <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. If anything, it's pretty much just prelude to World War Two. So, you know, let's skip over that and get to the good stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's basically uh, the summary that we tend to get. And we all just tend to you know, nod our heads and regurgitate it on the test and forget about it. Um, but <laughs> surprisingly, there's actually much more to the story. The interesting thing to take away from that official story that we're all fed is, well, actually, World War One started as a result of a conspiracy, specifically the conspiracy to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But uh, my idea of the World War conspiracy is a little bit more detailed than that. Um, so as uh, as you've seen, Eric, uh, it, it the first half hour of this documentary, it's being released in stages. And the right. first part is now uh, currently available on my YouTube channel and my uh, corporatereport.com. Um, but it goes through the, the preparatory uh, groundwork that was laid to make those entangling alliances that we've all heard about. Oh, it was just a, a meshwork of these uh, alliances and agreements. And and that's what led us into war. And everyone just slept. Uh, Sleepwalkers is one of the, the books that's come out in recent years to try to capture this idea. Oh, everyone just stumbled into war. Yeah, it was some kind of an accident. No. Nobody was to blame, James. No one did anything wrong. No, nobody made a bad no. move. It was an act of no, God, almost no. like a tree falling on an innocent person. And certainly nobody wanted war either. Yeah, no. Exactly. No, who would want that? Well, actually, we do have the actual names and the actual admissions of people who did want war and were um, warmongering, specifically on the British side of things, which is, of course, what we don't learn, because we hear about the warmongering of that bloodthirsty Kaiser, the Kaiser Wilhelm, who's who was so war hungry and he was just a horrible person. And that's, you know, is the Germans and they basically started the war. And so it's a good thing that they ended up getting blamed for the war and the Treaty of Versailles, which led to World War Two. Again, we all know that part of the history. We don't hear about the English side of it. And that's interesting because there are some extremely influential people who were involved in laying that groundwork that led towards war. Specifically, the story kind of starts, I would say, in February of 1891 uh, at a meeting 
of Cecil Rhodes, who you probably know, uh, you know, Rhodes of Rhodesia, Rhodesia. Yeah, which became Zimbabwe, of course, and all of that. Um, But uh, Cecil Rhodes was meeting with a couple of his close friends, uh, Reginald Brett, who was later to be Lord Escher, um, an extremely influential person who had the ear of the king, um, King Edward VII, uh, uh, during the lead up um, to to World War One and King George V during the time of World War One, and uh, another of his compatriots, W.T. Stead, who was this extremely influential journalist at the time. And the three of them in that meeting laid the groundwork for a secret society, <laughs> which sounds outlandish. I mean, how would we know about it if it's a secret? Well, it's because William T. Stead eventually went on to blow the whistle on this. He not only um, published, it, it, by cite in the documentary, a 1902 New York Times article where they wrote about Cecil Rhodes and his secret society and his plan to create a secret society that he said would gradually absorb the wealth of the world in order to create a British American Federation that would secure the peace of the world by spreading the English the English ideas and the Anglo-Saxon race to the rest of the world. So it was, it was, it was uh, you know, just like British imperialism on steroids was the plan, right? I mean, that it, was it, it like borders vision. on a that God complex to me. It, it, it exactly. In fact, it really is, because when you go and read um, what uh, William Stead eventually published, which was the last will and testament of uh, Cecil Rhodes, which is, of course, the famous will. Oh, he left a will that uh, that started the Rhodes uh, um, scholarship. Right. That was what his will did. Well, no, that was the seventh will. He had seven different wills that he'd written throughout his life, uh, the first six of which were devoted to this secret society and and how that was going to be funded and all of this. But by the seventh will, that that had all been expunged, and it was just about the Rhodes Scholarship. And it was and that's the part of history you learn. You don't learn about the other wills, which were published, and you can go and read about this and the secret society and all this. But in that, uh, in that book, in that text, Rhodes is talking about how sometimes he wished that he could bring down the stars and he could colonize the moon with the English race and all of this. Like, it really was was a god complex and it sounds insane but Rhodes was exceptionally wealthy exceptionally influential in his time and he laid the seeds that secret society was kind of crazy and and the idea of it and they had this circles within circles and all of this stuff and you know Illuminati-ish kind of thing that kind of idea let but me, let me add this that thing. kind of transmogrified over the years it got taken over basically by Alfred Milner Who's Alfred Milner? No one hears about this guy, but he was exceptionally important in early 20th century England. He was this very influential man who acted behind the scenes. He didn't hold any official posts, but he had the ear of everyone of any importance in British politics. And he was step by step helping to engineer the various alliances and intrigues that led that that, that created that web that whatever it was going to set it off would set it off and it would be war with Germany. And it just happened to be the assassination of the Archduke. That's how it was let in. And I try to show that in that that first half hour of this documentary. Well, yeah, that's what you show, kind of how the groundwork is laid, how different influential people wound up in different important positions, uh, ability to control media narrative, different things that led into uh, led up to the event with the Archduke where, you know, that was the opportunity or whatever to set things off. But that wasn't the beginning. And you know, fact, people act like that was the beginning. That wasn't the beginning in a way. That was kind of the end of an operation. And rather rather than, you know, just something that, that, that you know, they act like it was coincidence. They act like, OK, some, you know, slob just thought to himself, I don't like the Archduke. I'll go, go put a bullet in his head out of the blue. And when that happened, that some other things happened that 
were just serendipitous that, you know, that's the way we get. That's the mainstream narrative. You ever notice this? Whenever we get the shaft by the elites, whether it's sending our jobs to another country, taking every stinking dime we got and running up the budget to God only knows what, how many trillion dollars, whatever the case it is. Whenever we get the shaft by the elites, they always act like it was just happenstance. It was an act of God. It was serendipitous. There was nobody really behind it doing anything, James. Yeah, 2008, the banksters and the bailout and all of that. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah. Who could have foreseen that? You know, just oh, out of the blue. Yeah, exactly. Of course. And they always do uh, control the historical narrative, which is an exceptionally important part of this. One of the pieces of feedback I've gotten from this, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this documentary, thankfully, which I'm surprised by because I thought World War One. who cares about World War One? It's so far in the past. But a lot of people have been interested in it. One of the interesting pieces I've received from a few different people is, oh, I'm kind of a World War One buff and I've read a lot of the history and and this isn't how it happened, James. The, the, the history books say blah, blah, blah. And I say, of course, the history <laughs> books say that. Of course, they don't tell you this. Um, I'm basing this on a lot of different sources that are out there and in the public record and things that you can read about Alfred Milner and, and the various people who were involved in this plot uh, is out there in the open. It's just that they're, these dots are never connected in a meaningful way, except by a handful of scholars. And I interview one of the scholars, uh, Jerry Doherty, who co-authored this incredibly important book, Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, um, that uh, that came out a few years ago that connects a lot of these different dots, an exceptionally interesting and well-sourced um, book. And I'm trying to bring this this thread to the attention of the public, um, because again, uh, history is written by the winners. And if we take that as the rule, then the people who engineered this war into place, of course, they didn't leave all their cookie crumbs behind them for, you know, and oh, historians will figure it out in the end. Uh, of course, they, they, they very carefully scrubbed various parts of the record. Certain diplomatic cables from certain months and things like that have been completely scrubbed from the record. Oh, they just don't exist in the archives for some reason. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to fill in the blank with what we assume happened. Right. The exactly. Yeah, the, the nice detail. When you get into Here, it. James, something exactly. I wanted to ask about that you go into in your video is, is the anti-German sentiment that kind of got whipped up and, uh, you know, around the media or in the UK, different places. And I'm, it's tough not to see the parallels between how things are with Russia now, where, you know, in your video, you talk about uh, the, the Germans would be demonized, you know, very aggressively through, throughout uh, British media and elsewhere. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, um, it's a, a, an exceptionally important part of this whole puzzle because, of course, the English people had no particular ill will towards Germany at the at the turn of the century um, per se. It wasn't something that was instilled in them at that point, and they still thought of the Germans. Oh, they're 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 good people. King uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was actually welcomed in England um, even into the first decade of the twentieth century. Was was seen as uh, you know he's the cousin or the the nephew of the king and. But, you know, there was a lot of camaraderie. So to to turn that public opinion from general feeling of friendship to this is the enemy, the brute we must you know destroy, uh, obviously took concerted um, propaganda effort. And that that really began um, to, uh, around the turn of the century, but really amped up in that first decade and went to ridiculous lengths. Um, uh, of course, there were various 
press entities and, and editors and important publishers that were involved in this, including Lord Northcliffe, who ran uh, some of the most influential tabloids of the day, uh, who serialized things like The Invasion of 1910 by William LeCue, which is this incredible uh, fantasy novel about uh, Germany is going to invade in the year 1910. This is published in 1907. And uh, they're, you know, they're going to come with their ships and take over England. And it was this huge press event at the time. They even got the, the, the news paper sellers to dress up in German military uniforms to hawk the paper and everything like this. It was a big event and, and it sold millions of copies. Everyone was in reading this and interested in it. It did start to really sink into the public consciousness. But the real incredible propaganda didn't take place until after the war started. And the, the real concerted propaganda was towards the American public, because now the very same people who had engineered the war in in England and in, uh, against Germany, now we're trying to draw the Americans into that war. And how do you do that? Well, you have to show them this is a fight against uh, for good against evil. And who is evil? It is the Germans. And they and as I will go to, into in part two of the documentary, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com coming out in the next few days. There was an even more flagrant propaganda campaign that was started basically from the start of the war, uh, including the rape of Belgium and these other stories that came out about how evil, just completely inhuman evil the Germans were. And that ultimately did work. In the end, uh, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment that was whipped up. Well, we, and let me is, say this, um, uh, James. We've seen it here. Look, and, and, and that's why I say this. Look, um, Saddam Hussein was, he was the epitome of all evil. Then Al-Qaeda, my God, they're going to get you. Then it was ISIS. Oh no, ISIS is, you know, they're going to, every mall that you go into is going to be blown to bits by ISIS. We know that's a fact. And then of course, there was Assad, there was Putin. So it's like, they've always got a boogie. That's the thing. There's always a boogeyman out there. And I've gotten to the point where I don't buy any of the boogeymen anymore because I know when Putin or Assad is gone, we know, James, there'll be a new boogeyman. It could be me, you or Eric right now, but there's going to be another boogeyman out there. And to me, at what point yeah. do you realize that this is a game? Now, here's my question, and this is important. I've heard more and more people talk about World War One and the lead up to World War One. In the context of what's going on now, which is pretty horrifying mm. because they didn't have nukes in World War One. So talk about that a little bit about the context yeah. of how that applies now. Well, this is the impetus. This is why a few years ago I really started to get interested in this and thought I really have to cover this in some meaningful way is because of the parallels between 2000 at that time, 2014, when I started really thinking about this in 1914. You know, what what are the parallels is are we living through the same type of period? And there are a lot of things that you can draw. The interesting thing is maybe I'm biased from my perspective here in the Asia Pacific, but I'm looking at this as well, we have America, which is like what the British Empire was back at the turn of the century. The, the apex of the, the British Empire, the sun never sets on the uh, British Empire and all of that is the United States in today's context. And the German upstarts, the German Empire, which was rising as the industrial power at that time and threatening the, uh, the, the to take over that hegemony uh, from Britain. Well, who is that today? Well, it's China, right? That's the, it's the rising Chinese power. So I see a lot of those those types of uh, parallels. But interestingly, as you say, I think a lot of the propaganda that, that clearly is going on right now is directed towards the Russian boogeyman right now. It's the Russians who are behind everything. So 
I, there, there, that's an interesting spanner in the works in this. Uh, it's not, it's not an exact parallel, obviously, because if so, then it would mostly be directed at the Chinese. I think there's, but there is, there is certainly the the encampments that are forming, and we can see that it's it's China and Russia and maybe some of their BRICS allies versus you know U.S. and some of their NATO allies, and and I think that's starting to settle in some way right now. And I don't want to start predicting world warfare, but it is there are enough parallels for for people to be uneasy about that connection and the fact that of course i'm not the only one who's drawing that connection in fact it's been written about quite a lot even by mainstream historians at this part at this point yeah i mean there's a reason people say that history repeats itself right and, and if that, it doesn't then it rhymes <laughs> and that you know we need to learn from history and understand historical events and you know it's true. World War One is just not covered in American public school particularly much. Not that, you know, other things are history wise, but World War One is really on the back burner. And, you know, James, this is a great video that you put together, as are so many of the videos. And uh, part two, I guess you're going to get into more of the U.S. and how they got uh, brought into the war. That's right. The second part is specifically about how America was drawn into war, very much against the will of most of the public. In fact, exactly as in the British context, where some peace bringers were elected in 1906 because they were going to they, they wanted peace. And it turned out that basically the secret uh, society basically put their men in positions of power anyway. Exact same thing happened yep. in America, and especially in 1916 with the reelection of Wilson. He re his campaign slogan was literally he kept us out of war. Less than a year later, they're in the war. So, <laughs> right, and, uh, you just—it's incredible, incredible the way that happened. And now, you know, a guy like me, who's a, you know a real lefty, and I've been you know in the Democratic Party, straight Democrat ticket voting, you know, my entire life. And in recent years, I drifted away because I realized there's no party to me to vote for if I don't want war. There's no place for me to vote. There's no party that I can support. Uh, you know, it's like I used to think, well, there's some peace movement in the, in the in the Democratic Party. And I realized, no, the people who are the peace movement in the Democratic Party gets kicked out of the Democratic Party. So I kind of, you know, rolled out them pretty much voluntarily, you know, separated myself from that group. But it's now there is no place to go in America. If you're looking media, if you're looking at political organizations, it's like they've slammed the door on anybody who doesn't want perpetual war. And what I'm hearing from you is. That England, the, the same imperialistic mind in England in the 1900 to me is still here. And that is they wanted to rule the world. And when you hear the neocons now, basically they're saying we don't want any major superpowers that are going to challenge us. And we don't even want any regional powers or we're going to we have to take them out. And and it, to me, it's like. When hey, you start, Garland, I got to cut you off oh, here because we're up at the oh, end of the segment. No, disaster James, struck. James, where can people find you online? CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. All my work is up there for free. Please use it as a resource and spread it out to others. Well, James, in the unlikely event that we all survive another week, hopefully <laughs> we'll have you back on and talk about part two. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Thank you as always. Garland, what do we got next? Talking about oh my Israel God. and Gaza. We got Ali Abdunima, co-founder of Electronic, Electronic Intifada. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lines.